I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. And welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 81 for August 2019. I'm Duncan, and 1981 was the year of Raiders of the Lost Ark, Chariots of Fire, one of my favourite Roger Moore-era Bond films for your eyes only, the year that veteran actors John Gilgood and Henry Fonda finally won Oscars for the surprise hit Arthur and On Golden Pond, respectively, also one of the first horror films I ever saw, An American Werewolf in London, one of my favourite De Palma films, Blowout. A film I desperately wanted to see but wasn't allowed to, Clash of the Titans. And a film I saw but probably shouldn't have, The Much Maligned Condor Man, which starred Frank Spencer himself, Michael Crawford, as a bumbling spy. Oh, man, I remember that so clearly. Eh? Yeah, so do I. I've never seen that since I was like six years, six or seven years old. Why would you? Exactly. I want to hunt that one out. I'm sure it would be awful. Oh, guarantee you. Uh, the first part of the pioneering music documentary series, Decline of the Western Civilization. Fantasy film Excalibur, police thriller Fort Apache, The Bronx, Mel Gibson, double hits of Gallipoli and Mad Max 2. It's a pretty good year for old yeah. Mad Mel. Kiwi classic that forever immortalized the yellow mini, Goodbye Pork Pie. Uh, the legendary flop, Legend of the Lone Ranger, which I did see at the cinema as well when I was a kid. The astoundingly good Mephisto. The influential My Dinner with Andre. The controversial and heated remake of The Postman Always Rings Twice. Sidney Lemayne's excellent but often overlooked Prince of the City, Warren Beatty's Soviet epic Reds, Walter Hill's army version of Deliverance, Southern Comfort, uh, Bill Murray's surprise hit Stripes, Michael Mann's debut film Thief, Terry Gilliam's Time Bandits, and the most unevenly toned film I saw as a child, the weird mix of cheesy and gory, a film which idealizes and demonizes lions, Raw. <laughs> it was sold as a comedy It calls it a ferocious comedy as a tagline Whoa. But the climax is about as sedate as like straw dogs As lions maul poachers in visceral attacks And the resolution sees a hero conspiring to cover up a death In order to protect the lions um, <laughs> Wow it, it, I saw this at the films Bear in mind I wasn't allowed to see Clash of the Titans Because yeah. you know there's Swords and Sorcery, oh. he was like, oh, maybe don't go see that. Monsters, yeah. But then Raw was like, oh, it's a comedy, and it's lions and stuff. And the end of this film is, again, another one I haven't seen since I was like seven years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a legendary film as well, apparently. Yeah, a lot absolutely. of people, life-changing injuries, yeah. 70 injuries or something on this on this thing. Uh, Tippi Hedren starred in it with uh, her daughter, yeah, Melanie Griffith. Yeah. So, I yeah. Mean, Wow, you've seen it. Oh, I, I saw it at it, the man. movies, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, this was probably like my fifth or sixth film I saw at the movies. Yeah. And a yeah. Comedy. A com ferocious comedy. Ferocious. <laughs> uh, look, my teenage golden age of horror continued in 81, a year I will dub the Year of the Wolf. After all, this was the year, as Duncan said, of An American Werewolf in London, that incredible comic horror blend that gave us the ultimate werewolf transformation and perhaps history's finest, ah, it was just a dream, fake out scare. <laughs> That's right. right. But it was also the year of another great horror comedy werewolf film, Joe Dante's The Howling. The slasher business went into overdrive in 81 as Friday the 13th and Halloween both got their first sequels. While we also got the ludicrously fun Canadian horrors Happy Birthday to Me and My Bloody Valentine. I was like a, a you know, a date set thing, like a Friday the yeah. 13th or a Happy Birthday or Halloween, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
and the infamously gory The Burning. With, with Holly Hunter and George Costanza himself, Jason Alexander. Oh, really? Yeah, man. Wow. Totally. I mean, Holly Hunter, it's hard spot, but C- Costanza, I've yeah. got, I'm going to call him Costanza, <laughs> is right up there front and center being one of those jerky teenagers yeah. you know, that you want to get killed. <laughs> see, killed. I'm back, baby. I yeah. just imagine him saying stuff like that. Uh, from Italy, Lucio Fulci spat out the silly but enjoyable The House by the Cemetery and his horror masterpiece, The Beyond. Uh, meanwhile, David Cranenberg. Cronenberg blew up with scanners and James Cameron got to start with a film I'm sure he wishes people would forget. Prana 2 Flying Killers. <laughs> Love that. The Omen series finally finished for now with the Sam Neill starring The Final Conflict. Surely a relief for the relatives of the many, many cast members slaughtered in hideous accidental onset deaths during the series run. This must have been. Yeah, you just you, know. you wouldn't want to be related to him. It's like being related to Charles Bronson and Death Wish. Yeah. It's just like, oh, man. Oh, terrible. So, that, you know. <laughs> That's a good thing, I think, in a lot of ways. And one of my favourite fright flicks of the year also starred Neil, the astounding, haunting Possession, starring a very committed Isabella Ajani. But if 1981 belonged to any horror film, it was to the flick Stephen King described as the most ferociously original horror film of the year, Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead. Of course. Yeah, love that film. Still love that film. <laughs> the amount of money I've spent buying different versions of that. Yeah, film how many different time. versions do you think you've bought of Evil Dead? Um, I, uh, Evil Dead Two is worse. I yeah. think I probably I probably currently own three versions of that. Wow. Yeah, which is pretty pretty rough. Um, I've probably only bought maybe two versions of Evil Dead, but three versions of Evil Dead Three. Like I've got yeah. the big box set, you know, of all of them on Blu-ray. I've got yeah. the Blu-ray, and of course I had a DVD at one stage. Yeah. Probably had on VHS, but let's face it, that would have been pirated. Yeah. Yeah. And so, Simon, what have you been watching? All right, look, I hate those podcasts where the hosts spend like 20 minutes doing housekeeping, you know, mm-hmm. um, which translates as talking about themselves, as if we're listening to know what's going on in their lives, not the subject I've downloaded your podcast to listen to. <laughs> I don't want to be that podcast. I mean, do you really think your life is more interesting, yours probably is, Duncan, than the <laughs> topics you talk about? But I need, do need to say that actual real life does sometimes intrude into my podcasting life. And this month was one of those months. A combination of crazy, busy work and a spot of illness conspired to hijack the film festival for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so movies I wanted to see, I didn't buy tickets for. Other tickets I bought went unused, which is like this horrible crime. Eh? Oh, that is. It's a yeah. terrible feeling. I tried to give them away on Facebook. And the films I did see, look, I, I, don't, I don't really want to talk about. Right. So instead, I'm going to tell you all about The Headhunter from 2018. So a low-budget festival horror fantasy. The Headhunter follows a medieval warrior or fantasy world warrior, maybe it's a little unclear, as he hunts down a series of monsters, cuts off their heads and brings them back to his cabin to decorate the walls, <laughs> all the while hoping to finally slay the monster that killed his daughter years earlier. Oh. Yeah, I'd wanted to catch the headhunter ever since I saw its moody, beautifully shot trailer, uh, full of credit quotes and beautiful kind of grisly production design. I like the fact that it was a swift 72 minutes. Yeah, that's quick. Yeah, including credits, man. Uh, a perfect midweek watch for my busy month. But man, this was a drag. It looked good. The scenery was gorgeous. The production design, really impressive. And sure, it's cool the way they passed out the mystery of the film and made the best of a film that really has only one speaking part. But you've got to give me more than that. <laughs> and a film about a dude slaying monsters could at least see a monster slayed. Yeah. Or even fought. Is that too much to ask? I think it's not. Instead, we see the hero ride off and then cut to him returning with an orky-looking head in a sack and a fresh, gory wound to be treated. Eventually, I'm going to need some action. And, of course, eventually that action comes, but when it does, it's all flickering in the dark nonsense designed to hide the fact that it's clearly the hero wrestling with the monster that he needs to operate himself, which, 
is a trope I usually really enjoy. Yeah, I've seen yeah. that plenty of times in this podcast. <laughs> but not when it's the only thing on offer, yeah. and not in a film that's going for an atmosphere of dread and horror. Mm-hmm. There's a twist ending as well, but you'll see it coming. Right. You will absolutely see it coming. It relies on the hero being foolish on several occasions, so oh, it isn't particularly rewarding. Yeah. Oh, I can't stand that trope. Speaking oh, of totally. It's yeah. just idi- idiocy. Yeah. Uh, so it's not particularly rewarding, and it's really obvious as well. So I don't know about The Headhunter. I can't really re- recommend it. But I do have a begrudging respect for the film's design and the ability of that lovely trailer to trick me into wanting to see the film, <laughs> you know? But I, I think you've really got to up the action next time. I yeah. mean, kudos to you for making a really good-looking low-budget f- film. Yeah. But it's a low-budget film where nothing happens. Yeah. Yeah. And look, the, the director, uh, Jordan Downey, had previously made a killer turkey film, like a film about a killer turkey, <laughs> not a killer, called Thanks Killing. And I love that title. And he's also directed Thanks Killing 3. No idea who directed Thanks Killing 2. I wasn't going to spend that much time on research. Yeah. But I love the fact that there's a film called Thanks Killing. Yeah. Thanks Killing 2 is probably like um, James Cameron, you know, it's like Alien. Yeah, it's yeah, just yeah like totally. Inspired. Yeah, imagine that if you find out it's like Ryan Johnson made it or something. <laughs> yeah, eh? that's right. Well, um, yeah, a couple of things. I mean, you, you've got to be, uh, as a promo producer, you've got to be impressed with being able to cut a trailer that effective that makes yeah. you watch something out of something that's not. Yeah, I, I rewatched the trailer after um, pre- in preparation for this podcast. Mm. Go, what is it about the? And it is the fact that it's a well shot film. It's got a lovely look to it. Mm. The good locations, the set designs, fantastic. Um, and they don't show you much, which actually intrigues me. I think, oh, they're yeah. not giving away a lot here. Uh, spoiler alert: There's not a lot to give away. <laughs> and um, the credits quotes are largely of those kind of, you know, f- uh, fright rag magazine or something. Yeah. You know, so um, possibly not. You know, it's not like RogerEbert.com or something. Yeah. So I should have seen that as the warning sign as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what about yourself? What have you been watching? Well, look, uh, I think that we've got to admit we were both a bit derelict in duty here when it came to the International Film Festival. Uh, unfortunately, I missed it. Uh, I was away for most of it Yeah. Uh, overseas. So, um, yes, I didn't get to see any, unfortunately. I was relying on Simon, but obviously, as you're saying, you're a bit ill. So yeah. maybe I've got the, I've got the um, film festival... Uh, brochure here. Yeah, so totally. I'll, Just read from him and pretend you saw them. Yeah. So the film I'd like to talk about is 1951's Ace in the Hole. Uh, Billy Wilder's cynical side is on full display in this tale of a miner trapped in a collapsed cave and the reporter exploiting the tragedy in a small town for his own benefit. Kirk Douglas is a ball of energy, terrifying in his hunger and focus as the reporter Wilder's best move here is showing how Douglas's opportunism pushes him from unethical to immoral. And Douglas's best move is showing how his character feels a building sense of entitlement toward the victim and controlling the tragedy unfolding around him. It's impressive because Douglas both connects uh, and grows closer with the minor while increasing the exploitation of him. Uh, Although the film is set in blazing sunlight... It has noirish themes, uh, crumbling morality, adultery, corruption, and clandestine plotting. And from the film's champion to The Bad and the Beautiful, at this point in his career, Douglas was playing a chain of unscrupulous characters. But Chuck Tatum, I love that name, is one of the more complex, not admitting to himself the truly dark game he is playing until it is far too late. Wilder also was in the grip of a truly caustic streak of legendary films. This sits between two of... His greatest triumphs, Sunset Boulevard and Starlight 17. Uh, but Ace in the Hole has a cynicism that extends beyond human decay and reaches to institutionalised corruption and collective madness. A society easily swayed by the media to literally create a circus out of a tragedy. 
<laughs> which is uh, if you watch the film, you'll get what I mean. But uh, yeah, this was just quite a striking film. I saw a really right. good print of this too. It was on Sky, and uh, Kirk Douglas is great in it. He's really, yeah. really yeah. good. Yeah, he's just, uh, you know. We've spoken before, well, you've spoken about that kind of masculinity, you know, that's just kind of burst off yeah, the screen. Yeah, if this yeah, dude yeah. just walks in, even as a reporter, you're just like, whoa, you know, you'd follow that guy into battle, but you'd be kind of scared of him too. Yeah. You can imagine him playing like Tom Berenger's role in Platoon or something. Right, right. You know, just like, let's go, guys, let's go, just, you know, follow me on yeah. the voice of God kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, it was an impressive film uh, worth checking out. And I hadn't heard of it really. Uh, it's one of Billy Wilder's, like I say, it's in amongst all of these classics he did and it's kind of had a um reappraisal in the last kind of decade or so so yeah yeah worth checking out oh fantastic that does sound great mr boot i'm a 250 dollars a week newspaper man i can be had for 50. why are you so good to me i know newspapers backward forward and sideways i can write them edit them print them wrap them and sell them I don't need anybody right now i can handle big news and little news and if there's no news i'll go out and bite a dog and welcome to No Comps. This is the part of the podcast where we go out and look at a latest release. Uh, and this month, we went and saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, Timothy Oliphant, Dakota Fanning, and Al Pacino. Rick Dalton, a faded TV Western star who's attempted a big screen career, has seen him drift back into TV guest spots, hangs out with his stuntman best friend Cliff in 60s Hollywood. They drift from lot to lot and eventually cross paths with the Manson family on the eve of the murder of actress Sharon Tate. So that's a very um, spoiler-free review. Yeah. We will get into spoilers, though, but you'll have to tune in at the end of the podcast. So hang around after we play our little musical at the end, and then we'll get into some real spoiler uh, talk about this film. Because there are a lot of things that I've barely talked about this film with anyone because I just felt like any discussion would get into things... Right. I don't feel I can talk to with someone who hasn't seen it. Right, okay. Yeah. It'll be, be interesting. Uh, you can, I'm sure you edit it out, but you can stop me if you think, oh, you're getting into spoiler zone here. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, there's some clearly some things that we yeah. shouldn't talk about, but it's been interesting to see what stuff we can. What I regard as, as yeah, spoiler. Yeah, 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 yeah. Look, Tarantino has always spoken of hangout movies, where what's important isn't necessarily the plot or even journeys, but that the viewer wants to just hang out with the effortlessly cool and fun characters, like in Rio Bravo. Mm. There weren't many of them in Hateful Eight, but here, Booth, Brad Pitt, and mm. Dalton, DiCaprio, are like the Butch Cassidy and Sundance kid of Suave. Just as Pitt has always enjoyed breathing the air of Tarantino's coolest, calmest characters, DiCaprio has always been ignited by Tarantino's blistering dialogue. DiCaprio's near paralysis whenever he's considering his own acting abilities is played for laughs here. His meltdown of vitriolic self-doubt in his acting trailer is a single take of brilliance from DiCaprio that actually had me giggling in the cinema. Yeah, it's one of my favourite scenes in the film. Yeah. Loved it, loved it. Like you say, it's a hangout film. It's shaggy, it's kind of shapeless, uh, but it's a darned entertaining almost three hours. Even if it seems to go nowhere and kind of just revels in being a lovely to 60s Hollywood. In the same way the Coen brothers' Hail Caesar was their lovely at a 50s Hollywood. It's fun to watch Tarantino's version of a, like a 60s TV western, or particularly for me, his recreation of Italian cop thrillers, which felt bang on. Um, and understandably, I think a lot of film fans and film critics appear to love this film as well. And mm. I can see why. There's plenty of reasons to it. It's beautifully realised. The, the look, the feel of the film is a delight, and, and it captures a brief, beloved era in film history. Um, an era a lot of film buffs would love to live in, even if it's just for a tickle under three hours, you know? Mm. And... There's a real joy in watching the characters themselves love seeing 
themselves really mm. you know Pitt and DiCaprio staying up to watch DiCaprio jumping off the back of a truck in his guest role is really cool I love yeah. that and Sharon Tate visiting a theatre to watch herself and soak in the enjoyment of the other cinema goers that's pretty joyous as well mm. yeah look perhaps no film in Tarantino's repertoire has as much painstaking period detail spilling off the screen as his ninth film does long shots of uh, Rodeo Drive and Sunset Boulevard complete with 1969 cars awnings movie posters and for the third film in a row, Tarantino dedicates himself to exploring the cowboy western he so clearly loves. Speaking of love, he must have had a ball coming up with the ideas for the film names and their striking posters. Mm. Like that was just a treasure trove, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. of those. And be like, man, there's so much love put into those. And as you hinted at, perhaps the most curious section in this, and I hope I'm not getting to spoiler zone here, is the presentation of Sharon Tate. Yeah. Uh, to anyone other than contemporary 1969 audience. Tate stands almost exclusively as the tragic Laura Palmer-esque figure who will forever be linked to her own killer Bob, Charles Mm -hmm. Manson. Mm -hmm. So on first impression, it feels as if Tarantino doesn't quite believe that Tate is a real person. She appears ephemeral and slightly vacant. And interestingly, Tarantino devotes a chunk of the film to Tate watching herself on screen, as you've talked about. And he doesn't, interestingly, he doesn't inject Margot Robbie into the character's film, The Wrecking Crew, like he does with DiCaprio. Yeah. And the the current actress, Robbie, is watching the actress, Tate, that mm, she's playing. Yeah. But on reflection, I felt that this was the director wanting to show a modern audience Tate's actual performance mm. to give her her due by displaying her comic timing in her, like, 60s-style kung fu. He doesn't try to show her as a person. He shows her as an actress. And it may be the closest Tarantino has got to a heart without the help of El- Elmore Leonard. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a tricky thing, isn't it? I'm sure we'll get into this in more detail at the end of the podcast. Now, more spoiler review segment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the things that soured me my love for this film a little bit, mm-hmm. because there are definitely things I loved about it. Obviously, we've talked about it a lot. Mm-hmm. Is that it is such a middle aged man sausage fest of a film? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just cool men hanging out and being cool, and they're kind of reprehensible at times as well. Yeah, um, Pitt in particular. And, and I think we can get into it in more depth later, and we will. Uh, but even the film itself is taking a, I don't know, maybe sometimes cynical slant on the idea of a fairy tale view of Hollywood. Mm. There's still plenty of room to read it as a straight up endorsement mm. of, of those characters. You know what I mean? I yeah, mean, absolutely. Uh, there, there are one scene I did love that we hadn't really talked about too is, is when they go out to the um, the Spahn Ranch. Oh, so good. When Pitt goes, that's such a creepy, dreadful sequence. Yeah. You know, all these um crazed hippies watching him. It's a horrible moment there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Pitt's visit to the farm is humming with suspicious tension. Pleasingly, the cameos here felt natural rather than awkward. Tarantino shows considerable visual restraint as well, and the wide shots add to isolation of Pitt as our like, sole barometer of normalcy and safety. Mm. And yeah, and it's those parts where the, the restraint that Tarantino is showing makes it even more suspenseful mm. and that's yeah that was really impressive to see actually yeah i really enjoyed that sequence yeah i, I tell you about something else I, I thought about and you talked about like the period detail and the recreation mm. but i remember watching david o russell's american hustle mm-hmm. and thinking man the period soundtrack is doing a lot of heavy lifting for yeah. you here uh, but that's nothing compared to hollywood eh? yeah you know every almost every scene has someone leap into a car and the am radio cranks on just at the perfect moment yeah aretha franklin score or cutting to an interior where sharon tate is like dropping the needle on an era appropriate scene setting banger yeah it's insane how many tracks are in this film yeah you know like i mean i don't know how many songs i get through in a day but it's like according to tarantino's logic i'll be jumping my car right now cardi b would hit bam just like (laughs) that you know 
<laughs> Taylor Swift as soon as I jump out of the car and something else, you know? Yeah. It's, um, sur- it's surrounded. These people are surrounded by music. Yeah. Look, I'll also say I'm not wild about voiceover narration. We've talked about this before. Yeah. I've said that plenty before and I really don't care for the sort of narration that drops in only sporadically to kind of smooth over transitions and the like. If you're going to do narration, at least have the commitment to make an ongoing part of the film structure, I think. Yeah. So I didn't care for that because it just shocked me every time it, oh, it dropped in because it was like, oh, there's the narration again. Yeah. Um, I'd kind of forgotten that this was a narrated film. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It feels slightly unnecessary. Um, I, don't, I don't think it helps. Yeah. Like, I don't think it, there is a cut of this film I can imagine without the narration, yeah. which would work just fine. Yeah. 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 And there's, um, and it kind of feels like yeah, they're trying to speed up time when they're doing it. It's like, oh, we just want to get all these little cute things in and, yeah, and, and yeah. tell you how we there, get to there's this a point. big There's a big time jump near the end of the film. Yeah. Um, and the narration helps sort of smooth over that. But yeah, it is unusual. This is the most appealing galaxy Tarantino has created in his unique universe since Kill Bill for me. Uh, gone is the deathly freezing tundra of Hateful Eight, the slave plantations of Django Unchained, and inglorious bastards oppressive occupying forces of Nazi Germany. Instead, we have sunny backdrops, open-top cars, glitzy parties, flower power freedom, cool jackets warm while sipping cocktails and swanky bars. If Tarantino wanted to achieve nothing more than a hangout film, then for this reviewer, he succeeded, as Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is probably my favourite Tarantino film since Inglorious Bastards. I'm just stopping to think about that and... Yeah, that's probably fair. But like I've said before when I talk about Tarantino films, I end up admiring the craft and enjoying the journey if somehow feeling like, and you mentioned heart, the heart's missing. Oh, Um, yeah. You know, I keep wanting him to, I I guess I've always thought that Tarantino would somehow change cinema or at least Mm. create, you know, the great American film somehow, not just to riff in his own sandpit of film references. Mm. He keeps hinting that he retire, and probably soon he's talking about 10th film and this Mm. is 9th, so... And I kind of think, what will his legacy be? Mm. And it, it almost feels like it'll be Pulp Fiction and then a lot of postmodern pop culture yeah. references, you know? And some catnip for hyper-smart film buffs is thrown in as well, you know? Yeah. Um, and I don't know what we'll say that he said, apart from that he really likes Asian cinema and Italian westerns, you know? Yeah. Um, so I enjoy the film a lot, but mm. um, I don't know whether I, d- I just ho- hope for more. And I guess that's n- that's not what he's about this, no, is, this no. is what he wants to do and that's fine and maybe I should be content with that you know yeah I think you're right and I mean I think that there's, he's had some missteps in his career um, and he's also been on this path what I call kind of pre-Kill Bill and post-Kill Bill right and Kill Bill's kind of in the middle and then everything before that is a certain Tarantino and everything after that is kind of sometimes feels like he's remaking the same film like Glorious Bastards and Django and Chain feel very much not just because of Christoph Waltz, but they kind of feel like we're treading over the same territory in Hateful Eight. And there's a um, and I've often said that I think that Tarantino probably a bit of a so, bit of a sociopath, basically. Yeah. I, I don't think that he actually, you know, I think he's on the spectrum almost. Like I don't think he actually has that much of a heart. And, yeah, and I, I think that's possibly why he struggles to find it. Yeah, 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 that's right, and that's why I've always said, as we've talked about, I've always said Jackie Brown is actually one of my favourite Tarantino films, and a lot of that comes from Elmore Leonard, I believe. Because, you know, I don't think that Tarantino would be, not so much capable, but would be interested in writing the love story between Pam Grier and Robert Forrester that way. Yeah, it's one of the few films where I really feel those characters real and I feel for them. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. And, because um, I've never seen any evidence that he's done that in any of his other films. Yeah. 
<laughs> you know, like, yeah, no, 100% <laughs> agreed. And, 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 and maybe that's what I, as a, as a viewer, that's what I want. Yeah. And um, I should know by now that that's not what I'm going to get. But, yeah. you know. Yeah, that's right. But look, I, I, enjoy, I really enjoy Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm really looking forward to watching it again. The period detail just knocked me for six. Like, I was just, you know, mm. I thought that was incredible. It's like Scorsese building those um, sets for Games mm. in New York. Yeah. You don't need to do that. I remember uh, hearing a story about him doing that. George Lucas coming on yeah, set yeah, and yeah. going, people don't do this anymore. Like, no one's ever going to do this ever again. Yeah, yeah. I kind of feel the same way with this, where it's like, there's so many shots here that you didn't need to do, but you did. Yeah. And you just, you know, you must have had to clear out this street, something fierce. And I'm sure you did a lot of this through CGI, but it's pretty seamless, most of it. So the set design, the kind of love for it is, you know, really, maybe that's the love Tarantino <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can display is a love of coolness and a love of you know that kind of era or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I, I agree. Not for I his mean, characters. <laughs> no, no, I don't know if he he loves the real people inhabiting those worlds, no. but he loves the seeing the reflection of them, which is why, like I say, I think probably those the scene of Sharon Tate watching herself, and mm. the scene of Rick Dalton and uh, of of Dalton and and Booth watching. Mm. Uh, you know, Dalton uh, are great, are lovely scenes because yeah. it's just the love of movies, which he's. In yeah. love with. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And, and look, we will go into spoiler, as we keep saying, later. But um, I will just say, for anyone who's listening to this, I'm going to turn off for the um, spoiler part. A lot of this is Tarantino is an indulgent filmmaker, and we all know that. And to me, I found Hateful Eight almost interminably indulgent, to be honest. It's right. probably one of my least favorite. Like, I just didn't... There's parts of it I enjoyed, like Samuel Jackson. and what, But the beginning of that film, you know, Morricone's score is amazing. And again, some of the locations are brilliant. Man, the beginning of that film, the stagecoach, I was just like, oh, "What is going on here?" Like, it's just. But I didn't feel that here. But I could see how some people would. Yeah. You know, I see certain scenes in here, big chunks that I could see, like Sharon Tate. One we've talked about DiCaprio acting, you know, his character acting. Yeah. You know, Brad Pitt driving for long periods to, uh, you know, a song. Yeah. Look, I mean, yeah. I haven't really. I've sort of stayed away from the reviews, but I'm aware that it's been mostly incredibly positive yeah and everyone i've spoken to has wanted to tell me how much they love this film right so i don't i don't really feel that it's happening i mean yeah. and of course it's it's done great business as well mm. yeah, yeah. I, i've uh, there's one or two people i've i've talked to who hated it really yeah straight out hated it mm. and um and 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 people who loved it oh, and right. very really in between so that's that's probably a good thing you know yeah that's unusual because i'd say i'm an in-betweener on this one right interesting yeah yeah, yeah. <sighs> always have to break the mold oh i know just trying to be awkward <laughs> You could do anything you want to him. Th th throw him off a building, right? Light him on fire. Hit him with a Lincoln, right? Get creative. Do whatever you want. He's just he's happy for the opportunity. Rick, I don't dig him, and I don't dig the vibe he brings on a set. Uh, and now we're on to the top five. And uh, in 1994, Quentin Tarantino said, I steal from every single movie ever made. And there are visible references to many other films. Pulp Fiction has plenty from the close-up of Mia Wallace's lips talking into a microphone, mirroring the narrator in Walter Hill's The Warriors, to Travolta and Thurman's twists looking similar to Fellini's Eight and a Half. The opening profile tracking shot following Jackie Brown is clearly a nod to The Graduate. But there are nods, or tastes, and then there are blatant steals, whole chunks of narratives, themes, or overwhelming aesthetic similarities. So here are the top five films that Quentin Tarantino ripped off. Tarantino's breakthrough film, 1992's Reservoir Dogs, owes a debt to a lot of films, uh, such as Kubrick's The Killing, or the earlier The Asphalt Jungle, 
but no film mirrors Reservoir Dogs more than Ringo Lamb's 1987 Hong Kong crime thriller, City on Fire. What a, oh, what a yeah. great title. Right? Yeah, I love fantastic. that. Uh, starring the legendary Chow Yun-Fat as, let me just check my notes here, Chow, <laughs> an undercover cop assigned to go undercover with a bunch of jewel thieves. City on Fire seems to hit all the same plot points. The only difference being that it's a tale told chronologically, and the heist itself is shown in a very, very bloody scene. <laughs> oh my goodness. Otherwise, you get an undercover cop wounded, a veteran crim taking a side against his own suspicious boss, leading to an almost identically staged Mexican standoff, a shootout, and then the arrival of the police, just as the undercover cop admits he too is a cop. Uh, the similarities here are unavoidable. Naturally, they're totally different films, however. Rewatching City on Fire recently reminded me how melodramatic films like Lambs are. Um, and spoiler alert, it actually reminded me of spoiler alert faves John Woo's films. Right. Um, they're a far cry from the irony, sharp dialogue, and unconventional structure of Reservoir Dogs. Also, and I kind of hate to say it, but Sitting on Fire is, isn't that great, really. Mm-hmm. Certainly not up there with Wu's best. It's it's a pot boiler, really. Lamb would go on to a brief Hollywood career, directing Van Damme a bunch of times, yeah. um, including in Replicant, one of the strangely ubiquitous films in which JC played multiple roles. <laughs> I always love that. I don't know why he played... So I mean, the guy are. could barely act enough for one. And yet they keep casting him as like twin brothers <laughs> yeah. or replicates or time-traveling versions of himself. Yeah, just like he's Alec Guinness or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the amount of times he appeared on screen with himself is yeah. like madness. Um, anyway. <laughs> anyway. Uh, Lamb passed away at the end of 2018, which is a fact that we seem sadly to have missed. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that because no. he was quite young. Um, I always enjoyed Lamb's crazy action films. Big fan of 1992's Full Contact, which has a Italian fat looking super cool while riding a motorbike and slicing hoodlums up with his butterfly knife. He's got one of those, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know those guys who could always spin them around to? Oh, yeah. He's doing that, and he does this thing where he cuts a guy, and it's raining, and he holds a knife in the rain, so the raindrops hit the blade and wash the blood off. Nice. So cool. That's great. It also has Simon Yam shoot somebody with his fingers. <laughs> like, he pulls his fingers out, shoots them, and then the shot cuts back to show that he has a gun in his hand. And it's like one of those things you have to pause and go, no, he shot with his fingers. <laughs> I've still no idea why that was a thing. Like, clearly they would have had to do special effects to make the powder come off his fingers and everything. Yeah. But they did. He's like, it's weird and it's kind of magical. And I loved it. <laughs> so I don't know. I got off a bit t- off tangent there to talk yeah. about Ringo Lamb. But I figure since he died, like, just at the end of last year, it was time to give Lam- Lamb some love. Yeah. Uh, Ringo Lambert, that's what you can Ringo change. Ringo Yeah, yeah. You can change your name A to. lot of people call me that. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, that's an interesting one. Yeah, look, the, the, I, and I guess this always alerted me to Tarantino, as, I, as I'm sure everyone did. We all love Reservoir Dogs, and, and it's difficult to overstate how important that film was. I mean, Pulp Fiction was Pulp yeah. Fiction, but Reservoir Dogs was like, I watched that film like... It's eye-opening, it, eh? It was amazing. I was just like, that just was... I watched that ten times. I, oh, I literally had the VHS and was showing, saying, "You got to watch this film." Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know how I've I've probably done that like once or twice in my life, and I remember having that at university and just going, "Dude, you got to watch this." Nah, no, no, no. Let's grab some beers, sit down, and watch this, and yeah, everyone yeah. loved it. Um, but even back then, this is pre-internet, everything. The the maybe I was reading Sight and Sound or something at that yeah. point. But everyone started going, you know, this is just ripping off. So precocious. Yeah. Uh, well, it was the Empire of Sight and Sound, right? Yeah, yeah. So Empire was It sounds like, like the, a Sight and Sound kind of thing to them. Yeah. Empire was like the bubble gum, like, yeah. hey, everything's great. You know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. hey, this new, you know, uh, action film's really good. Yeah. And then, you know, Sight and Sound was like, well, you know, mm. it wasn't enough, uh, you know, suffering in black and white in this French film. For yeah, me. yeah. Um, <laughs> but, um, but they talked about City on Fire, and it actually drew me towards Ringo Lamb. I think I... 
uh, at that point, I would have seen Hard Boiled John Woo, but actually brought me even closer towards Hong Kong cinema because people were like, no, 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 this is ripping yeah, off yeah. another film. So, um, yeah, that was, I mean, the, the little, like you pointed out, the Asphalt Jungle, the, the name conventions as well, the yeah, killing, yeah. those things were, you know, that, that to me is like nods. Yeah, no, that no, that's, this is more City like on fire a lift. Like, yeah, it's a yeah, lift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, while the plot of Django Unchained is different, Tarantino takes the entire lead character, his demeanor, the setting, the title song, even the opening credits from Sergio Corbucci's 1996 film Django. Civil War and Slavery are the backgrounds for both films. Django Unchained also takes on the weirdly lurid and offensive 1975 film Mandingo, but it is Carbucci's work that Tarantino homages slash mines, not just in this film, but also in Hateful Eight, especially 1968 Snowbound, The Great Silence. But in Tarantino's corner is the Homeric nature of the Django character, seemingly offered to the cinematic faithful as a hero free from copyright, mm-hmm. uh, as over 30 further unofficial adventures of Django were made. So Tarantino's film can be seen as simply a continuation of the sprawling global phenomenon, which has a nomadic character appear in films from Italy to Germany to Japan and now America. Uh, and that in itself was taken from, you know, Kurosawa's Yojimbo as well. So, uh, you know, Django, the original 66 film. Yeah. So, you know, it's the you know snake eating itself a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you can't deny that Django definitely takes... And he's quite upfront about that, but yeah. still that doesn't make it any less kind of egregious. Yeah, I really loved um, the Italian Django. I think we talked about it. Yeah. I think I saw it for the first time last year. Yeah. Strangely late in the, in the piece to get yeah. into it, but a great fun film. Yeah. My other films on my list here steal entire narratives from other films. But my number two pick is more of a cinematic magpie, if you like, pilfering little bits from here and there to create its wonderful whole. And that film is 1994's best screenplay Oscar winner, Pulp Fiction. As Duncan might say, time for a list. Uh, <laughs> dance moves are taken from 1929's Pandora's Box. Didn't realise that. Mm-hmm. Eight and a half, as mm-hmm. you pointed out. Uh, Batman the TV show. Mm. Incredible. And the Aristocats, to name a few. An animated film. Uh, the the rape scene references Deliverance and Clockwork Orange, and the scene immediately preceding it, where Butch runs into Marcellus Wallace, literally, <laughs> is a riff on a similar scene in Psycho. Right. Uh, Zed's dead, and the name Zed are hilariously a reference to, to Zardos, which is awesome. <laughs> I love that. Um, the infamous Ezekiel speech is taken directly from a film of yet to see called Karate Kiba. Mm. Yeah. Nice. There are shots referencing the Warriors, as Duncan spoke about, the driver, taxi driver, and three days of the Condor. And I'm pretty certain this is a tip of an iceberg. Oh, yeah, I imagine it would be, yeah. Yeah. And you know what? That's the thing with Pulp Fiction. It's perhaps, maybe along with Kill Bill, Tarantino's most reference-heavy film. It feels like his chance to get all those influences up on the screen, like this is his chance, you know? Yeah. Uh, as if he had to get it all out of his system before he could move on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I guess maybe he um he just keeps moving on to another thing that he's obsessed with, you know, some Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe so. But this one does feel when you look into it like, oh, there's a lot of things here that you're you're wanting to play with and do and y- yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's part of what its power is. It's just oh, he's having such a good time with it and, yeah. and and getting these things out and getting them up on screen. And it's very similar to Kill Bill, I think, in that respect. And that yeah. Kill Bill is man man, that's packed with Yeah. You know. References. What do the kids call them? Easter eggs? <laughs> oh, I, hate, I hate that term, eh? Yeah, maybe the kids from like 10 years ago called them Easter eggs. Oh, uh, did they? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what they're called now. No, I don't know. Something else stupid. Look, as much disturbing fun as Inglorious Bastards is, the 2009 film's originality may be the most questionable in Tarantino's arsenal. It steals its name from an obscure 1978 
World War II film. And while Tarantino can pillage from little-known Hong Kong films, westerns, and kung fu movies, with Inglorious Bastards, he takes the majority of his plot from two of the most famously notorious World War II wish fulfillment movies, The Nihilistic Dirty Dozen and the wantonly illogical Where Eagles Dare. <laughs> uh, Clint Eastwood's laconic killer is the Brad Pitt of the piece, minus an entertainingly clumsy buongiorno, but just as useless at being able to speak German. Mm. Uh, and Michael Fassbender's character is essentially Richard, Richard Burton's in, in Eagles, a velvet-voiced British gentleman leading a group of assassins in Nazi uniforms in a, on an infiltration mission in enemy territory. They both have important meetings in cosy German inns where steins of beer are delivered by serving wenches, and both are interrupted by suspicious Nazis calling their authenticity into question. There are double-crossing moles and some nasty violence. Members of the party die, but the mission goes ahead, even with suspicions hanging over it. The final shots of both films also contain a coldly vindictive move from the heroes on the villain. Mm. If the middle third of Tarantino's war film is where eagles dare, then the final third is the, dirty, is the Dirty Dozen. An assault on a gala event where Nazis are killed with extreme prejudice, including fire being set to a locked building, grenades being thrown into a black tie event. The killing is cruel, and the anti-hero leads go out in various blazes of glory. And the victory at the end of both is somehow a hollow, senseless bloodbath, mm. but kind of showing as like, hey, isn't this great? <laughs> oh, man, you make me want to watch The Dirty Dozen again. Yeah. <laughs> They're both great. I, I actually re-watched uh, Where Eagles Dead not long ago. Oh, really? Um, this year, just happened to be on Sky. I was like, you know yeah. what? I haven't watched this since I was a yeah, kid. Yeah. Man, is it nuts. It's just like, it doesn't make any sense. And right. it's just, <laughs> his whole, it's like Richard Burton has... 95% of the dialogue in the film <laughs> and everyone else is like Clint Eastwood says nothing apparently he just gave all his lines to Burton to say, really yeah he's just like just give him, give him you know because Clint Eastwood doesn't say it like saying lines at the best of times yeah and he was just like well, why do you want me to say this do you, you hear this guy's voice he's like, yeah. <laughs> like he's done Shakespeare on stage man like give it to him but apparently like you know um, Richard Burton was so drunk he was like he, he walked into you know like a mantelpiece and cut his head open and oh like, my goodness oh, we had to do sh they had to do shots from behind with the standard like whole scenes because he was a drunk and b like visibly scarred yeah yeah um, yeah, yeah it, it's bananas so um, I love the yeah. fact that Eastwood doesn't want to do lions you know <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing like what are you doing again oh you're an actor <laughs> yeah, you don't want to say things you want to, you want other actors to do your work for you that yeah. seems really weird it, it's so kind of intuitive in, in some ways <laughs> it's so uh, it's it's but he is so um, uh, laconic yeah he's, so laconic. he's very much like Brad Pitt yeah. like, I'm sure they must have taken some influence from Eastwood's performance in that but yeah Dirty Dozen as well man yeah that's more that's more Tarantino's style you know yeah like just pure kind of like dodgy like really dodgy characters who are killers and rapists and you know it's like yeah but they're going out taking Nazis out eh and you're like yeah they're also pieces of shit yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah 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 <laughs> yeah <laughs> Except John Cassavetes, he's cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, look, I, I said before, Pulp Fiction is maybe the most reference-heavy of Tarantino's films, but maybe it's Kill Bill in its 2004 sequel. From the bride's yellow onesie stolen from Bruce Lee in Game of Death to the lights-out silhouette fight scene from 98 Samurai Fiction, uh, the one-eyed lady killer and thriller, a cruel picture, to the woman bleeding to death through her eyes, a death I mentioned last month, I think, yeah. from City of the Living Dead, which is a pretty deep cut. Yeah. Um, Kill Bill is pretty pastiche heavy Though maybe it just seems more obvious to me Because so many of those references Are from the kung fu and horror films I grew up with mm. But the film it steals from the most Is a film I hadn't seen Until I started prepping for this podcast yeah. 1973's Lady Snowblood 
the tale of a woman warrior on a brutal trail of revenge who's trained in the martial arts by a sadistic swordmaster and tracks down each of the people she holds responsible for the death of her family. The film is divided into chapters and even has an animated sequence like Kill Bill. There are even individual shots, specifically the one of the assembled villains all gathered round and like from a low angle, right. staring down at the camera, which are, are restaged by Tarantino, uh, who even uses some of the music from the 1973 wow. film as well. I mean, you don't get more thievery than that, do you? Yeah. But I guess that's the thing with Kill Bill. The whole two-part film is all about Tarantino taking what he loves most about mostly Asian cinema and chucking it up on screen. It's probably why I enjoy those two films, particularly the first one so much. Um, I've got to say, though, Lady Snowblood, if you haven't seen it, that's a fantastic film. This is great. I mean, like, we've done this top five, but it's made me want to watch, you know, rewatch films that we've yeah, already yeah, seen. Yeah, yeah, totally. Or films that we, we haven't. Yeah. You know, and that's great. Yeah, in no, so I guess that's Tarantino's argument. Yeah, I guess so. It's um, but it, but it makes you think if you know if Kill Bill seemed uh, radical and beautiful and amazing when it came out in two thousand and three, Lady Snowblood in nineteen seventy three, which is you know chronologically all over the shop, it jumps forward and back in time. It's flashbacks, animated flashbacks, mm. chapter titles. You know, yeah, that's crazy. Nineteen seventy three. You know, yeah, that's something else. Eh? Yeah, yeah, really entertaining film. Spoiler alert. All right, that was spoiler alert. Episode 81. Oh, man. man, those numbers are climbing up, eh? I know. We're going to be getting to the 100 before you know it. Well, probably a couple of years, to be honest. So. Yeah, and then what do we do? Do we start talking about films from 2001? or you know, <laughs> Yeah. Do, well, actually, that's not so much of a problem. But once we get up into the teens, yeah. you know, do we talk about two, a film from 2015 or do we talk about a film from 1915? Maybe 1915. We go back to that. Eh? Oh. Just like a lot of German expressionist yeah, films. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think so, eh? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So this is Murn. Uh, you know, Fritz Lang. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know people will be going, oh, they're talking oh. Murnau again. Oh, Just go. skip it. Oh, let's get to Eisenstein. Come on, man. Yeah. Hey, so what was your favourite film of the month? Uh, my favourite film of the month was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Ah. Yeah, yeah. I- I'm looking forward to watching it again. Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think that was my favourite film of the month. I, re- I recommend going out and checking out Ace in the Hole. Um, and uh, but yeah, once one time in the mirror, and yeah, yeah. this one that grabbed me. What about you? Well, not the headhunter. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I there's a lot I really liked about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but I loved Lady Snowblood. Oh right, yeah. So I mean, if you're out there and you can get a chance to find that, it's fascinating. I mean, part of that's the the kind of historical film buff in me that yeah. I can watch a film from 1973 and go, it's amazing what you guys are doing in this film. Yeah, yeah. So I'm impressed by that, but it's a on it, on its own terms as well, a thoroughly enjoyable film. Oh, great! Oh, well, I will hunt it out. Oh, cool. Well, yeah. I can, I can, I can hook you up. Oh, um, cool. Well, thank you very much, Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, so what? Uh, what are we going out to? Hey, well, the song we're going out to it's "Rambling Gambling Man," the Bob Seger system. Uh, system. Yeah. So um, that uh, that's from the not, one. It's not a system. He's a man. <laughs> he's more a system now than man. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, once upon a time in Hollywood. That's what it's from. So um, one of the probably, you know, 25,000 songs that are on the soundtrack. Yeah, so. pretty much. Yeah. Hey, but don't go away. Yeah. Have a little listen to this and then come back because we're going to kick into our spoiler space where we talk about the things we couldn't really talk about in the review. Yeah, so just hang on for the end of this music track for a bit of the Bob's, Bob's Seeker system and we'll be right back in about yeah, two shakes of a lamb's tail. Two shakes of a Ringo lamb's tail. <laughs>
And this ain't stopping. Okay, welcome to the spoiler zone. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> yeah, so look, there's a lot of spoilery stuff that we felt we couldn't get into the main review. And it's pretty much three things that, you know, I want to get into. I don't know if you've got anything else to add, but they are Brad Pitt fights Bruce Lee. Yep. Brad Pitt is a wife killer. Mm-hmm. And the ending in which Pitt and DiCaprio and Pitt's dog gruesomely slaughter the Manson family cult, thus averting the deaths of Sharon Tate and her friends. Mm. As we said, this film isn't without problems. Uh, for many, it will appear, as I say, self-indulgent, um, which is probably the most uniform criticism levelled at uh, the auteur Tarantino. And there are some, shall we say, questionable semiotics going on here. Like you say, Brad Pitt fighting Bruce Lee is one thing. Having Lee seem like a blowhard who Pitt can easily beat up is just like another thing altogether. Particularly after decades of Asian representation in American cinema consisting almost solely of like these kind of creepy villains mm. um and then lee's breakthrough iconic status as a cool heroic figure is like actually really important yeah yeah it is because i mean think about what he had to overcome yeah you know in that time period in the 60s yeah to, to get where he got to yeah yeah I, I tell you there's a part that always stuck with me have you ever seen the um was it the dragon the um the the bruce lee story with jason scott lee and hey jason scott lee this is a name i haven't heard for a while yeah and there's a scene where he goes to the movies uh yeah. with his white girlfriend and he goes and sees Breakfast at Tiffany's. Right. And it's Mickey oh Rooney's. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> and it always stuck with me. I mean, like, that film's not great by any stretch dragon I'm talking about. Yeah, no. But it always stuck with me like, oh, man, that is that is genuinely offensive. Yeah, if you that's know? what you were seeing. Yeah, yeah. Y- y- yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> and um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's, that's important. And also, I just don't quite know what he's trying to do, especially having, like, Pitt, who, as you say, is kind of like this really quite an ugly character in some ways. I mean, Tarantino might as well have Pitt in a ring knocking out a gas bagging Muhammad Ali in 1969. You know, for all of the kind of loaded coding that's going on here, so what are you trying to say Yeah, here? I, don't I don't get, get it. it. I mean, he gets in more cheap shots on Lee than Pitt gets in on Lee, yeah. and, that, and that's a, a, a few. Apparently, he, he wanted to have it more of a clean, clear-cut victory for Pitt as well, oh. and he had to get kind of talk around to that. In part by Pitt, who was yeah. like, I don't know if I should be beating a 55-year-old man just beating up Bruce Lee. Yeah. I mean, and I've seen, I've heard people discuss the idea that this is kind of a dream fantasy sequence of Pitt's because yeah. it cuts in a scene where, you know, he's taking a shirt off on the roof and kind of, yeah, right. and then it's just like, so maybe it's not the real, but I don't know that that's enough and I don't think the audience really twigs the idea if, if that is what he's going for. Yeah. It just seems to be, you know, Lee presented as kind of a comical prick, really, getting his butt handed to him by this old man. Yeah, I I thought that that was the reason he got kicked off the. It is. The it is. Thing. So but then, I I guess what people are saying in its defence is that in Pitt's mind, he's fantasised it into being a bigger deal than it was. That's a really it's a long, stretch, right? Wrong walk to get to that, eh? Yeah, it, yeah, I feel it totally is. Um, yeah. so yeah, that's the scene I I just watched in the cinema. And thought, what is going on here? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what are you doing? taking these shots at him for it doesn't help for me also having Zoe Bell show up um, oh, yeah. to remind us yet again that she's not really an actress I mean oh. obviously Tarantino loves her but when I mean, you've got her in a scene with Pitt and Kurt Russell it just shows her limitations yeah so. yeah. it's just one of those weird things that he seems he seems to love having her in his films yeah there's another one and and, and uh, it goes beyond like a cultural cringe thing like no one's got a cultural cringe when you know Taika Waititi shows up and you know voicing and 
door. Oh. So it's not that. It's just that she's not capable. It's asking her to do too much. It, it really is because, I mean, you're putting her on a screen with good actors as yeah. well, and that just that's yeah. not doing her any favours. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what you're going to do, but it's just not helping. Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah and, yeah. I mean, if you put her in Hateful Eight, and you're like, oh, you get to act with like Samuel Jackson and Tim Roth and Jennifer Jason Lee, and you're like, yeah, of course I'm going to do that. Yeah. It's the same here. It's like, oh, well, you're in a scene with Kurt Russell and Brad Pitt's beating up you know, Bruce Lee, and you're like, great, sign me up. Yeah, I'd yeah. say yes to that as well. Probably shouldn't be in that film. <laughs> probably shouldn't, no. Look, and then we get to the second of my um, things I found a bit problematic. It's Pitt's character, when it's revealed that he might have murdered his wife, uh, a flashback suggests it may have been an accident, potentially. Mm. Though it seems more likely it suggests it was the comical payback for her being kind of a nag and annoying, you know? Yeah. It, it's glossed over and yet it hangs over the film for me. Um, do we like this wife murderer, you know? Yeah. Are we supposed to? The audience I was with kind of didn't seem to care, I think, ultimately. Mm. I mean, the movie rolls on and he's a cool guy, but mm. he murdered his wife, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, to give Tarantino a little bit of credit here, it, like it's almost a throwaway thing. Like It's not a whole set piece built around that, so it's like a throwaway thing, and it is left ambiguous, you know what I mean? It's like... Yeah. You know, but it, it's almost done as a cheap laugh, like that scene, and, and mm. the way it cuts away, to, to give that to one of your lead characters seems... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Odd decision to do. Yeah, it unnecessarily really, odd too. Yeah, it is because it. I don't know what he's trying to. Achieve. Again, it's one yeah. of those things where I don't know exactly what he's trying to achieve because it, yeah. it colours my impression of that character. Obviously, yeah. as it should, because you know, yeah, he may have shot his wife with yeah. a spear gun. Yeah, that's um, right. Was this kind of a, a Natalie Wood kind of thing? Ah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Point. It kind yeah, of. Yeah. I know that's a different era. I mean, that was eighty one, wasn't it, Natalie yeah. Wood? But but still, you know, mysterious, unconfirmed death on a boat kind of yeah. just reminded me, you know. Yeah, there's another there's another part here I do want to say talk about um, just before we get into the end is um, there's a part that I didn't want to say, uh, but it was I was actually surprised by was when I thought they were going to off Pitt's character at, oh, really? at the ranch at the ranch. Yeah, right, yeah. Right, right, and right. so what I thought because the end I could kind of see coming was like, oh, it's going to be wish fulfillment. Like, yeah, and Glorious Bastards was exactly what it is. Yeah, but um, there was a point there where I was like, oh, what they're going to do. Pitt's going to eat it here in some kind of surprising, shocking way. Right. Um, the way he dies and burn after reading spoilers. And DiCaprio is going to have to deal with these guys by himself. Right. You know, like he's lost this. He lost his buddy. He here, lost yeah. his buddy and he lost the guy who's actually doing all the heavy lifting for him, who actually does all the stuff. So I actually thought that's what was going to happen. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then in some kind of roundabout way without him realizing DiCaprio would get ven- revenge at the end. Right, right. You know what I mean? Like he didn't yeah. know what happened to him. He didn't know that he drove off to this place. But yeah. we as a cinema audience would get a resolution. Yeah. It's yeah. yeah. so actually that's why it was heading. Right. And so I was surprised that he didn't get, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It also because DiCaprio seemed incapable of being able to deal with these guys whereas I, all the whole way through that film was like well Brad Pitt's going to definitely be able to deal with these oh, guys he doesn't seem like I mean, he can <laughs> he can brood up he can beat up the greatest uh, martial yeah. arts actor yeah. in history and he can just be high on LSD and you know yeah, like yeah. have his dog kill people so yeah so no, no problems at all like you say yeah, yeah it might have been a more interesting oh I don't know I mean it would yeah. be an interesting take to see DiCaprio mm. have to deal with it yeah 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 uh, <laughs> far be it for me to tell Tarantino how no, to script, no 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 <laughs> I get that yeah um, but but this does lead to the the last part, yeah. at least for me in this yeah. bullet. Um, and if I said the audience didn't really seem to care that Brad Pitt's a wife murderer, they certainly didn't care when Tarantino pulled an inglorious bastard on us and had history take a left turn so that Rick and Cliff can brutally, and I mean brutally, yeah. beat up and burn to death a bunch of murderous hippies. <laughs> I mean, I think my audience pretty much loved that. 
that's sort of kind of screwing with history thing. I mean, it works for me in Inglorious Bastards, but I mm. thought, like you, I saw it coming here and kind of, yeah. I thought, oh, he's going to do this thing again. I don't know if you should make it a recurring device. And while I have laughed at my share of gruesomeness during my years of horror movie fandom, something stuck me as disquieting about watching Brad Pitt repeatedly, repeatedly smash a woman's face into every available surface mm. into Caprio's house until she was a little more than a bloody pop. I mean, wow. And, and the audience I was, was pretty giddy about it too. Mm. And that might have been nervous laughter, I'm not mm. sure. But I suspect it was mostly straight up pleasure. I mean, it was mm. it was funny and, you know. Uh, it's a funny piece of over-the-top violence, uh, and that can be funny. But, man. The ferocity and pure enjoyment Tarantino indulges in with prolonged violence toward women, played for laughs, has actually been a bit of an issue for a long time for yeah. me now. Uh, and something that has ramped up in his last few films. I mean, Hateful Eight, I was just like, how many times are you going to punch Jennifer Jason Lee in the face? Right. And it's the same in this, where it's like, perhaps Tarantino wants to represent certain female characters as like pure evil in order to submit them to just justifiably, in, in, in quotes, brutal retribution. <laughs> or perhaps he's just an equal opportunity sadist. But I, I, it's interesting with Jennifer Jason Lee in Hateful Eight, again, spoiler zone for that, they make her like this real nasty character. So mm. they're kind of, yeah. People can punch her in the face, and people can, yeah, you know, and like, oh, she said, she she's said like some really something really offensive. Let's punch her in the face again. Oh, and then she, you know, yeah, let's punch her in the face, and it just happened all through. Yeah, yeah. And it's the same in this room, like, especially the that one female character. They particularly that's really cartoonishly, you know, uh, like Wiley e. Coyote level. Oh, um, it was so brutal. On. Yeah, it was so brutal. And and I kind of feel what what you're saying here is is what. My big problem and the, and, the, and the thing I'm struggling with is, I agree, I think he's creating, like, his, the defense would be, like, these are the Manson cult. They yeah. mur- flat out murdered a bunch of people. Yeah. So what's wrong with having them killed? I mean, surely, yeah. I mean, what, you know, how is that different from Nazis? Well, it is quite different because it seems to be an excuse for allowing Brad Pitt to repeatedly just yeah. bury this woman's head in, in furniture. It's, yeah. It's... It, it just seems to be an excuse to be able to do that to me, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and it is so violent. I mean, yeah. no, there's no men in this film that get treated. I mean, there is a guy who gets bitten up pretty badly by a dog, yeah. but there's nothing quite like that piece of violence to that woman. No, no, that's right. And actually, to, to, to both the women as well, because there's the one woman who, sure. you know, there's the other one who gets flamethrowed by... Let's not um, forget, one gets lit, set on fire. Yeah. Yeah. And that really goes on for a long time where she's yeah. like, you know, flailing around like the Wicked Witch of the West and the yeah. uh, melting... Same thing in my cinema audience. People were, were giggling with, with uh, I think, genuine enjoyment for most of it. Yeah. And and it's this really interesting line walk where you are mm. aware of... It's not just like, hey, these guys are murderers. It's like, these guys are murderers for 50 years have been their kind of infamy. And, the, you know, and, and, and in some people's eyes, they didn't get you know any kind of justice for these guys. That, you know. But Tarantino's idea of justice is like... Oh, well, he doesn't just believe in the death penalty. It's like, we're going to hang, draw, and quarter these guys. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. This is like, you know, there's his classic line from Pulp Fiction, we're going to get medieval on your ass. Yeah. You know, he says that in Pulp Fiction, you never see what they do to Zed. If he made that now, there'd be like 10 minutes of Zed just being like, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, he got a shotgun to the balls in, in Pulp Fiction. But if he, I'm sure if Tarantino made that now, he would just have like, Zed being torn apart by dogs for, you know, like five minutes or something. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> potentially. Although part of me wonders if Zed would have to be a woman for that. Yeah, paper. probably, yeah, um, true. Yeah, I don't know. So that was uh, just my last thing that I made me walk out of that cinema screening thing a little bit. 
because none of the women here feel particularly real. I mean, Sharon Tate just feels like an, mm. if, you know, ethereal kind of beauty, yep. so pure, and so, yep. and I, and um, so that doesn't feel particularly real to mm. me either. No, if you know what I mean. No, that's yeah. right. Well, especially someone of the ability of someone like Margot, oh, Margot Robbie, Robbie. Yeah, you know what I mean? Totally. Like, if you just got flavor of the month, you know, Vogue model, but you've got like. The woman who did I, Tonya, you know what oh. I mean? So you're oh, aware, everyone's yeah, aware yeah. of what she's capable of. Yeah. So, um, yeah, to kind of have her kind of, yeah, drift, as you say, through this. Yeah, and that's why I said in the, in the um, spoiler-free review where mm. I'm trying to kind of cut him a break. It, it, also because I was just like, even narratively, even as an enjoyment thing, I'm like, what is, what is, what's going on here? Like, right. when she's just watching herself, and it's, it's actually Sharon Tate. So, yeah, um, yeah and... But I did love DiCaprio's... There are scenes where some people might go, that's kind of self-indulgent, but I really enjoyed DiCaprio, DiCaprio's acting, you know, or like Rick Dalton's acting when he's on set, mm. you know, and like he's kind of engrossed and then he screws up the line and he's just like, oh, give me the line, you know, and then it goes back. And um, DiCaprio's fantastic in this film. <laughs> it just reminds me how good he is at comedy. Yeah. And, and the thing is, I don't know that he's ever done a... A comedy, like a straight up no, comedy, that's right, yeah. but his comedic performances in, in this and Wolf of Wall Street, you know, yeah, are, are right. fantastic. Yeah, they're so committed. I yeah. mean, he's amazing in this film. He's such a great, you know, he's brilliant. Yeah, I just, you know, hopefully he turns up in like a, um, you know, a Rob Schneider film or something. Oh, totally. <laughs> I mean, they're making another Anchorman, you know. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Surprised I couldn't get him. Yeah, um, yeah, he is. He's great in this, but there's yeah. some really subtle things like that kind of, like I say, that self doubt thing and that. The thing he does where he, he stutters a little bit yeah, as well, which yeah, is a yeah. really nice character yeah, yeah. choice to do. Mm. And, uh, and like I say, Brad Pitt's that just totally cool Steve McQueen kind of yeah. you know, thing. Although while we're talking about Steve McQueen, Damien Lewis is Steve McQueen. Yeah. is just frightful. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, it's not really his fault. He just does not look like no, Steve McQueen to me. And that's it's just right. like absurd to see him sharp as Steve McQueen. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was a curious thing to put like the names down the bottom of like explaining this person, this person. You know, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Again, it's like the narration. It's one of those things that kicks in and then goes and it's, um, yeah. you know, an odd choice. But maybe if they didn't name him Steve McQueen, somebody would have to go up and go, how are you enjoying the party, Steve McQueen? Somebody, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have known it was Steve McQueen. Yeah, that's right. Just look like Damien Lewis in a fright wig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, and uh, well, that's the spoiler review. Spoiled yeah. it pretty well. Um, so thanks everyone for listening. Yeah, cheers. And uh, we'll see you next month. All right, take care. Cheers. Spoiler alert.